Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Diodis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. We're back! Our holiday slowdown for Greek Like Me podcast wound up being slowed down more than expected when Stealth Greek Productions became House of COVID. And to add insult to injury, I came down with a respiratory infection last week, so that's why I'm so nasally. Mask up, folks. We'll be on slowdown a little longer than we expected as we recover and catch up, but we still got a few things done. While on bed rest, Douglas John reorganized the website. Visitors no longer have to scroll through a long list of episode sources to reach more current information. Click episode sources on the toolbar to find images for each episode with a direct link to that episode sources. And stay posted as we gear up for another year of Greek history, food, music, and culture. Today's episode explores an important chapter of Greek history, of world history, Greek Jews and the Holocaust. We're dropping this episode two days before Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is the 27th. Never forget the inhumanity and suffering of Holocaust victims or the inhumanity and suffering throughout the world today. So trigger warning, we'll be discussing disturbing violence and the horrific suffering of innocent victims of the Nazi regime. So younger listeners or those especially sensitive may want to give this episode a pass. Like most people, I hope, I studied the Holocaust in school and in college. But I never remember hearing about the persecution of Greek Jews. Teachers and later professors talked about German Jews, Polish Jews, French Jews, Hungarian Jews, and so on. But none of them ever mentioned the Greek Jews. There have been Jews in Greece since ancient times, for thousands of years. But none of the books I read or the movies I watched over the years about the Holocaust ever mentioned Greek Jews, a population of over 80,000 people before Germany invaded. Last April, 2023, I saw the trailer for a documentary called My People by Anna Razan. She uncovers the story of her great-grandmother, who was deported to Auschwitz, and her grandfather, who fought with the Greek resistance. It's been nominated for several film festival awards, and hopefully it'll drop on a streaming service soon. We've linked the trailer to our podcast notes. It was this trailer that started me reading and researching. Like many of our episode topics, there's so much to learn both the rich history of Jews in Greece and the appalling actions of the Nazis in their obsession with destroying the Jewish people. There are so many stories as policy played out in different ways throughout different regions of Greece. We're only going to be scraping the surface to present an overview of Greek Jews and their fate during the Holocaust. It's kind of a launching off point we'll need to revisit again and again as we map out the history of a people who've been part of Greece for millennia. There's archaeological evidence of Jewish synagogues in Greece going back to the 5th century BCE. The Romaniot Jews of Eastern Mediterranean were the oldest Jewish community in all of Europe. According to the Jewish Museum of Greece, Greece was the gateway through which Jewish people reached the rest of Europe. And the Romaniotes have lived in Greece continuously since Hellenistic times. I've heard the pronunciation Romaniot, but it was all English speakers, and I'm suspicious of people who pronounce the third letter of the Greek alphabet, Delta. 
please message us if you have family roots and you can let us know the correct way to pronounce it. But I'm going to be pronouncing it Romaniotes. The Romaniotes spoke Yevenik. I'm not sure the pronunciation of that either, a Judeo-Greek dialect that included Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and some Turkish words. There are very few Yevenik speakers left in the world. Reportedly, a handful of elderly Jews in Turkey still speak it. The Romaniotis were part of Greece during the classical era. They were there when Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world. They were there during the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and they fought for Greek independence. Jewish Greeks were mentioned around 85 BCE in the writings of Stravonas, or Strabo, a Greek geographer and historian. Greece travel says, at the time of the Apostle Paul, there were flourishing Jewish communities in most of the major Greek cities, which at that time were scattered throughout the ancient world, Alexandria, Antioch, Smyrna, Athens, Thessaloniki, then known as Salonika. There's little evidence of persecution during those times, as many people from different backgrounds and religions mingled and lived side by side. Even as they kept their religion and dialect, the Romaniote were highly assimilated, especially in the Ionian Islands, Athens, and central Greece. The majority of Greek Jews came well after the Romaniotes, though. Sephardic Jews immigrated to the Byzantine Empire as Catholic Europe became increasingly anti-Semitic. A great wave of them came in during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, which started in the late 15th century. Those who weren't murdered or forced to convert were expelled from Spain, as well as Italy and Portugal, and large numbers sought refuge in what was then Ottoman-occupied Greece. The Ottoman Empire welcomed them. The Sephardic Jews spoke what is called a Judeo-Espanol dialect called Ladino. They were a more educated class of people, many of whom had worked in business or for the governments of the countries that had driven them out. Most of these folks settled in the northeastern areas, like Salonika. Salana became a Jewish-majority city, known as the Mother of Israel, or sometimes the Queen of Israel. Where the Romaniote Jews had long ago become part of the Greek communities they lived in, Sephardic Jews in Salonika became neighborhoods onto themselves in the early days. As new residents of the Ottoman territory, many served the empire that had welcomed them, creating a conflict between themselves and the very Greek Romaniote. But over the centuries, the Sephardim became part of their communities as well. During the Greek Revolution, Romaniote fought for independence. But Sephardic Jews in the Peloponnesos and areas of central Greece were often punished in retribution for perceived loyalty to the Turks. Overall in Greece, whatever anti-Semitism did exist was mostly centered in Salonika, especially during the Balkan Wars of the early 20th century, when Salonika became Thessaloniki, as it was finally wrested from Turkish control and again became part of Greece. This was in 1912, around 80 years after Greece won independence from the Turks. The influx of Asia Minor Greeks during the 1920s population exchanges between Greece and Turkey and the catastrophe, the genocide of Greeks that drove even more Greeks from Turkish territory, created a backlash against Jews in Thessaloniki, who were seen as competition to the Greek refugees crowd in the region, even though they'd been there for hundreds of years. Greeks and Jews had lived together with their Armenian and Turkish neighbors in Greek towns scattered throughout Turkish territory for unknown number of years. 
The Greeks exiting Asia Minor and entering Greek territory were both welcomed and dismissed by their fellow Greeks as they swarmed into a country already suffering extreme poverty. They had to struggle to make their place. The mother of Israel's once majority Jewish population shrank against the influx of Greek refugees and the city became more Hellenized. A few anti-Semitic organizations popped up in Thessaloniki, later quashed by Prime Minister Metaxas' government when he came into power in 1936. Later, those same organizations became a channel through which the Nazi propaganda machine worked once Northeastern Greece came under their control in 1941. But Greek Jews were Greek citizens, and most of the country didn't have the friction Thessaloniki had experienced early in the 20th century. A number of Jews had chosen to immigrate to Palestine and other parts of Europe as Salonika became Thessaloniki. But the city still had a large Jewish population by the time the Nazis invaded in the wake of the Greco-Italian War. Our Ojide episode explains the initial invasion of Greece by the fascist Italian army and their subsequent rescue by the Hitler's Nazis after the Greeks whooped their behinds. The Jewish Museum of Greece states that until 1940, 80,000 Greek Jews enjoyed life in the knowledge that they were free citizens with equal rights and their Jewish way of life was still intact. But the Nazis had been planning the extermination of the Greek Jews for a long time. According to Mark Mazower's wrenching history inside Hitler's Greece, as far back as 1938, German diplomats were already feeding information about Jewish communities in Greece to the SS in Germany. He writes, when war broke out, the regime's Jewish experts had a fairly clear picture of the size and character of Greek Jewry. This is incredibly disturbing. People minding their own business, living their lives while diplomats stationed in their country are spying on them, planning their destruction. Mussolini expected Greece to be handed over to him once Germany crushed the Greek army. But Hitler decided to break the country into three zones of occupation. Italy was put in charge of a number of islands and the southern part of mainland Greece, including Athens. Bulgaria, bordering Greece along its northeastern region and hungry for Greek territory, was given Thraki. Germany took the region of Macedonia, which includes Thessaloniki, as well as um, they had Western Crete, a number of other islands. For those unfortunate enough to live in the German zone, abuse and restrictions went into effect immediately. Jewish newspapers were shut down and Jews were restricted to jobs that would pose no threat to the occupying authority. Greek citizens, including heroes of the Greco-Italian War, were now forbidden to enter cafes, restaurants, theaters, cinemas, shops, and other businesses because of their faith. They were being excluded from everything that made life normal and everything that connected them to their fellow Greeks. Local newspapers were commandeered by the occupiers and began printing anti-Jewish propaganda. The EEE, the National Union of Greece, the anti-Semitic Thessaloniki organization put out of business by Metaxas, was recreated at the behest of the SS. Important centers of Jewish life, like synagogues and community centers, were shuttered, their contents confiscated. Mazower, who is an incredible source, writes, in 1940, Hitler instructed the regime's chief ideologue, 
Alfred Rosenberg to seize all scientific and archival materials of the ideological foe for a Frankfurt Institute purpose with educating the German people about the Jews. There were troops assigned to this. And I'm going to quote Mazower again on what happened next. Between May and November, a unit of more than 30 officers and German academics scoured the country, visiting no less than 49 synagogues, clubs, associations, schools, banks, newspapers, bookshops, hospitals, as well as over 60 individual homes. Nazi troops, accompanied by German scholars, rampaged through every possible institution that touched on Greek Jews and stole everything they could get their hands on. Medical records, histories, family genealogies, Torahs, religious items, personal items. They shipped it out and created a museum about what they hoped would soon be an extinct group of people. It brings to mind the treatment of indigenous Americans. Steal their stuff, display it, while wiping out the people. Unbelievable. Archives, ancient manuscripts, irreplaceable collections of rabbinical judgments were taken, along with any records providing information about the community. Rosenberg opened a library for the exploration of the Jewish question, which housed 500,000 volumes. 10,000 of those were Jewish books and manuscripts from Greece alone. Stealing every aspect of a group's history religious life, its very existence, before exterminating that group. Evil does exist. In the United States today, we see politicians and their supporters attacking, gaslighting, and negating people in their histories. We are supposed to be on guard against this monstrous behavior. That's what the Holocaust has taught us. On Saturday, July 11, 1942, male Jews of Thessaloniki over the age of 16 were ordered to gather at Eleftheria Square. Eleftheria means freedom, so Freedom Square, to register as civilian laborers and receive work cards. For hours on that very hot July day, 10,000 men were forced to stand without hats on the Sabbath in the heat, without water. Some were forced to do calisthenics until they dropped. Christian Greeks had been told helping a Jew, allowing them into your store, into your home, giving them water when they were being tormented, would result in severe punishment for the offender and their family. Foreign consuls, seeing this, began scrambling to evacuate Jews that had citizenship in their countries. The Turkish consul, Salahettin Ukman, gathered up Jews with even the remotest proof of Turkish citizenship, according to jewishroads.org. About 40 people were released to him. He was called Righteous Among Nations by Yad Vashem for saving those lives. Yad Vashem is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center charged by the Israeli government with commemorating, documenting, researching, and educating about the Holocaust. They also honor those who risked themselves to help Jewish people at the time of the Holocaust. Those men who'd suffered in the grueling heat at Freedom Square were forced to report for manual labor, working on roads and airfields needed throughout Macedonia for the Nazi war effort. Many became ill from lack of food, sunstroke, and malaria. In October of 1942, 7,000 Jewish men were released from manual labor in exchange for a huge sum of money, ransom basically, collected by local Jewish communities. It must have given people temporary hope that they could reclaim their family members. 
In December, the Nazis destroyed the Jewish cemetery of Thessaloniki, smashing ancient tombstones and vaults, using the stone or cement for roads and fortifications, completely obliterating the graves of loved ones so that even their remains couldn't be gathered by their families. I can't imagine the incredible shock and grief experienced by people who had to witness something so low, so vicious. It's unfathomable any government could be so callous. The Nazi regime was incredibly calculated in their cruelty. They did everything they could to systematically beat down and torment the Jewish people. They were insanely obsessed with what they called the Jewish question. And they were psychopathically determined to eliminate the world's Jewish population. Adolf Eichmann, may his bones be forever cursed, was one of the principal organizers of the Holocaust. He pushed ahead to make sure the German zone in Greece was free of Jews as quickly as possible. He wanted the deportation of all 50,000 Jews in Thessaloniki to be complete in six to eight weeks. Eichmann appointed the same monster who deported the Slavic Jews. Dieter Wieselitzeny arrived in Thessaloniki in February 1943, and the Nazi-controlled press began printing horrible lies and propaganda about the Jews to ease the way for further dehumanization of people not like them. Like QAnon, Newsmax. That's how it starts. Greek Jews were soon ordered to remove themselves from designated parts of the city, their homes for generations, their community for hundreds of years. 6,000 families were pushed into newly built ghettos so the Germans could more easily control the people they claimed were a threat to the Third Reich. Jewish homes and businesses were seized. German officers and administrative workers took the vacated homes. Businesses were taken over by the officers' men or ransacked and sold off. Collaborators were rewarded for their cooperation. Laskeris Papanaum, a well-known collaborator and anti-Semite, was given two tanneries that had belonged to Jewish citizens of Thessaloniki. The appointed Greek custodian of Jewish businesses, Elias Luros, protested the gift to Papanium and continuously complained to the Nazis that no one had the right to sell off any of the properties or their contents. Those taking control were only supposed to be in possession temporarily until the legal owners, the Thessaloniki Jews, returned home to claim them. I guess at this stage, the Greeks of Thessaloniki still believed the Jews were being sent away for the duration of the war that one day they would make their way back home. It's heartbreaking. Luros tried to do his job and prevent the seizure of Jewish homes and businesses, and he and his staff were repeatedly threatened. Duros was finally arrested in July of 1943. He was eventually released and tried to resign his position as custodian of Jewish businesses because he wasn't allowed to do his job. But he wasn't allowed to resign either. Synagogues, Jewish community centers, and libraries were bought up for a pittance and leveled before the lots were sold to contractors. Homes were dismantled as Germans and collaborators tore them apart, looking for rumored riches hidden inside. The Germans blew up synagogues or used them to stable their horses. To Greeks, all of this behavior should sound very familiar from the purges of Greeks in Turkish territory. The murders, the massacres, the desecration of holy places, and the cleansing of the land. 
making Greek anti-Semitic groups in Thessaloniki all the more revolting. Rabbis were harassed on the streets. Occasionally, Jews were arrested and shot as communists. By February 16th, a curfew was enforced against Jewish citizens. By the 25th, the Yellow Star was required to be worn by all Jews in the city. Christian Greeks weren't permitted to speak to Jews or interact with them in any way on threat of severe punishment. The emotional torture was diabolical. Separate the Jews from their community by not allowing them to conduct normal business or follow social norms, then physically separate them into a ghetto while giving their homes and belongings over to the occupying forces. Remove all records of the community and ship them to Berlin. Desecrate the graves of their loved ones. The Nazis systematically wiped out all of the ties the Greek Jews had to home and community and finally deported them to Auschwitz so there would be nothing and no one left to show that the Jews had been there. Early on, the Germans had claimed the deportation of Greek Jews was for military security. But children, the elderly, and the sick and mentally ill were pulled from hospitals and asylums in the route. At the beginning of March, the chief rabbi of Thessaloniki, Zvi Koretz, who'd acted as representative for his people, was told to prepare them for deportation. He tried to bargain with the Nazis for their lives without success. In two written protests Greek political leaders sent that month, Mazara tells us Greek leaders raised the fear that the Jews were destined for extermination, which the Nazis continued to deny. On March 15, 1943, the first train transport of 2,600 Jews were sent north toward Poland and Auschwitz. In April, Rabbi Koritz was able to meet with the Greek puppet prime minister, Yanis Ralis, to beg his help in stopping further deportations. Surprisingly, Ralis did file protests with the Nazis, but in the end, the deportations continued. The rabbi himself was eventually imprisoned and deported to Bergen-Belsen. He died three months after liberation. May his memory be eternal. Christian Greeks were forced off the streets as the Jews were driven out of their neighborhoods to the railway station. The Nazis seemed to want to continue this lie that nothing bad was happening. They were just sending the Jews so they were out of the way and couldn't spy on the German army. They were going to get worker IDs and work crews for the benefit of the German state. Thessaloniki was the first and hardest hit in Greece. It was also the biggest Jewish population in Greece. After Thessaloniki, there was less obedience to German demands to register or to name Jews in a community. This was first spurred by the evidence of Nazi duplicity. Jewish citizens were allowed to bring their valuables and suitcases with them as they were taken away. But it was later discovered the same belongings turned up in the pockets of the German soldiers escorting them away. Suitcases of clothing and other items belonging to the Jews of Thessaloniki were being sold on the black market in the Peloponnesos just weeks after deportations took place. It was soon plain the Germans had no intention of letting the Jews return home. Mazzaro recounts a story by the novelist Yorgos Ioannou, who was a boy at the time of the deportations. His baba, his father, was a train driver pressed into service by the Nazi regime. He was ordered to drive the trains deporting Greek Jews towards Serbia, where German officers initially insisted they were being allowed to establish a Jewish state. But 
but it was only a stop before their final destination. Yorgos remembered his father returning home distraught after one of these journeys. Yorgos's father saw train cars packed with victims. No food, no water. Partway through the journey, he was forced to stop the train in a remote area where Nazi guards searched passengers for valuables, stealing everything they could carry. Yorgos's father saw that people were dying in the cramped cars and witnessed the body of a young boy thrown into a ditch besides the tracks like trash. His father told Yorgos that that child made him think of his own sons while German soldiers threw handfuls of watches at him. The German zone was relentless in its destruction of the Jewish community. Jewish Virtual Library reports that after the deportations of Thessaloniki, only three Jews were left in the city, all of whom had married Greek Orthodox Christians and converted. The Bulgarian zone was complicit in following all German directives for seizing Jewish property and deporting Jews. The Italian zone was a completely different matter. The Italians ignored German demands for strict measures and deportation. Through 1943, thousands of Greek Jews escaped into the Italian zone. Mazzaro writes that the Italians and Greeks were disgusted by the Nazi racial policy against the Jews and even tried to oppose it. Italian soldiers and diplomats took part in derailing Nazi policies against the Jews. Greek resistance groups spirited them away into the mountains where Nazis couldn't reach them. Outside of Thessaloniki, resistance against the Nazi persecution of Greek Jews was getting stronger. Italian diplomats forged papers claiming Italian citizenship for some and getting them out of the country. The French charge the affairs in Athens tried to convince the Vichy government, the French puppet government of the Nazis, to help Jewish families who were French nationals, some even veterans of the French army during World War I, but his pleas were ignored. They wouldn't have been safe in France anyway. Black marketeers would smuggle Jews to the Middle East for a price. In September 1943, Italy surrendered to the Allies. It was a terrible blow for Greece, especially Greek Jews, as the Nazi army rushed in to take over the Italian zone. In October 1943, the orders came through. Eichmann wanted the entire Jewish population of Athens and the rest of Greece deported to Auschwitz without further delay. The men who'd successfully carried out the destruction of the Jewish communities in northeastern Greece were transferred to Athens. It began with a curfew forbidding Jews to step outside of their homes between 5 p.m. and 7 a.m. Then a decree issued by the German chief of security and police forbade Athenian Jews from leaving or changing their place of residence. Jews were ordered to report within five days to the Jewish Community Center to register their names and addresses with German authorities. Anyone disobeying these directives would be shot. Christians helping or sheltering Jews were warned they would be sent to concentration camps or worse. Athens Grand Rabbi Elias Barzilar was ordered to collect information on the Jewish community and hand it over to the Nazis. Instead, Barzilar destroyed the records and was snuck out of town by Greek partisans in a mail truck, along with his wife and daughter. They were evacuated into the mountains, where the rabbi aided the resistance. He survived the war along with thousands of other Jews from the region who'd followed his example and escaped to the mountains where the Greek Liberation Army was in control. In all, 2,000 to 2,500 Jews joined the partisans, many in the resistance in Karpenisi home territory of the Diotis clan.
500 more escaped to Smyrna in Turkish territory. Others were hidden by Greek Orthodox clergy, monks, nuns, and citizens. Jewish Virtual Library says that the Greek police proved helpful and sympathetic to the Jews. But the Germans continued their insane persecution all over Greece. On the island of Rhodos, Rhodes, Jewish citizens had avoided arrest and deportation that swept through the rest of Greece as Nazis took control until mid-July 1944, when the German command in charge of the island consolidated the Jewish population into a few villages. The president of the Jewish community was given orders. This is always how the Nazis proceeded. They put Jewish leaders in charge of relaying their orders or would appoint someone to be the leader in charge of communicating with the people. Was this false comfort? Sadistic bullshit? I don't know. The president of the Jewish community of Rodos was told all Jewish men over the age of 16 were required to gather to receive identity cards and work permits. That morning as the men arrived, the SS appeared along with an interpreter to tell the president that the women were to bring all of their belongings and join their husbands or they would be shot. When the women got there, the Nazis stole all the valuables they brought with them, brutalized the civilians, while their colleagues looted the empty homes. They took their eyeglasses. They pulled out their gold teeth. Where in God's name did these monsters come from? On Sunday, July 23rd, more than 1,600 Jews were ordered to leave the island. They were marched through the city on empty streets the Nazis had cleared by setting off air raid alarms and forcing Christian citizens to stay inside their homes. As they walked toward the port, guards beat the Jews with rifle butts, herding them onto three old cargo vessels. Several people died on the trip to the mainland port of Piraeus. Their bodies were thrown overboard. And you can feel the terror just growing and growing for these poor victims. From Piraeus, the victims were sent to the infamous holding camp, Hailari, where women and men were separated, strip-searched, and in some cases beaten to death. August 3rd, 65 people at a time from this group in Hadari were crammed into wagons used to transport animals. The doors were sealed and they were taken to the train to be transported to Poland. 100 people died on the way, their bodies thrown out along the rail line as they went. After being judged too weak to be useful, 1,200 people were gassed on arrival. Everyone else was forced to work in coal mines, quarries, railways, or road building. Women were raped, sterilized, experimented on. Only 150 survived the camps, but many of them died from exhaustion shortly after liberation. I hate relaying these horrors. I have trouble sleeping at night thinking about them. But that's the point, right? We have to remember what happened. We cannot forget it or it will be repeated over and over again against the Jews, the Gazans, Tibetans, Iranian women, black Americans. We have to face it, acknowledge it, and try to prevent it. That doesn't seem to be working too well right now, but we have to bear witness. We are bearing witness. The Hadadi camp, the way station the Jews of Rodos suffered in before being ultimately deported to Auschwitz, was a notorious stopping off point outside of Athens where both mainland Jews and those from the islands were warehoused until they 
they could be crammed onto trains heading for Poland. It was a horrific place of suffering and torment. Masaur describes it this way. If there was one place in Greece where terror was refined and exploited to the full, it was Hadari. Prisoners were taken there for interrogation. Orthodox hostages snatched in retaliation for partisan attacks on Germans were taken there for mass executions. It was a transitory camp for Jews and Italian soldiers. The Italian soldiers were the enemy now that they'd surrendered to the Allies. The Jews and Italians were there while waiting to be sent north out of Greece. The Hadari camp commander was an evil, sadistic son of a bitch. Sturmpenfjörder Paul Radomsky. According to post-war testimony of a Greek inmate that appeared in Mazower's book, Radomsky made his entrance on the day he took command of the camp by shooting a Jewish Greek army officer who'd just arrived in front of the other inmates. There were accounts of him beating prisoners with a whip, executing prisoners during roll call if there were rumors of attempted escape. In this way, he shot a prisoner by the name of Levi and ordered the other prisoners who'd witnessed the execution to take the body away. But before they could, Radomsky began whipping the prisoners, grabbed back the dead man, and shot him again. Then he ordered the prisoners to remove Mr. Levi's shoes because they were new and worth money. Any civilized government would have relegated this psychopath to an asylum for the criminally insane. But in Hitler's army, he was just one of many monsters let loose to kill, torture, and destroy innocent people. On March 23, 1944, Jewish men in Athens were told they were being deported to Germany to work until the war was over because of their support for Britain. Many Jews had already escaped Athens, as we said, for the partisan strongholds in the mountains. But remaining men, women, and children of Athens were collected at the Melodoni Street Synagogue until over 700 Greek Jews were finally held at gunpoint in their place of worship. They were taken to the Hadadi camp, but were on a train to Auschwitz 10 days later. Hundreds were fated for Dr. Mengele's sadistic experiments. The rest were gassed. On March 25th, the Jewish community of Ionina in northwestern Greece were rounded up. 95% of the Jewish population of the town made the terrible trip to Auschwitz. Corfu, an island off the northwestern coast of mainland Greece, was stripped of its Jewish population in June, who were sent to the island of Lefkadas, over 75 miles or 122 kilometers to the south. There, in the middle of one of the town squares, barbed wire had been erected to form a holding area for Jewish prisoners. A Greek Orthodox priest walked over to one of the prisoners to offer him a cigarette. The Nazis shot the prisoner and aimed next at the priest, who dared to show kindness to another human being. Greek police were able to intervene and save the priest. Still, local Greeks tried to feed the prisoners, cramming morsels of food through the barbed wire. Some of the Corfu Jews did evade the roundup. We've linked a YouTube video to the podcast notes called The Secret of Erikusa. It tells the story of a Jewish tailor named Savas living on Corfu, just outside of the Jewish quarter of his hometown with his wife, three daughters, and granddaughter. The people on the small nearby island of Erikusa would take boats to the bigger island to shop, and many came to know the tailor. Savas' family escaped to Erikusa, when the Germans came for the Jews of Corfu, and the people of the small island hid the family 
and they survived the war. Stories like these kind of kept me going as I waded through three years of horrific, mindless violence against the Jews of Greece. And I want to share more of these stories of hope, decency, and humanity to emphasize the utter cruelty and subhuman behavior of the Nazis and how regular people pushed back in the face of evil because they could not do otherwise. The chief of police in Athens, Angelos Evert, provided false identity papers to Jews in Athens, shielding them from persecution and helping them to escape. He was hailed later as righteous among nations by Yad Vashem. There's the story of the father of future Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. His name was Yitzhak Persky, a volunteer in the British Army. One source says he parachuted into Greece, another that he was stationed there, but since Nazis were fully in control of Greece at the time, I'm going with he parachuted in. He was captured by the Germans. Persky escaped, and with six other British soldiers was hidden for two years in a Greek Orthodox monastery on mainland Greece. Finally, the soldiers decided to try to escape Greece and were captured again and placed in a POW camp. But they survived for two years because of the Greek monks. On Zankintos, on September 9, 1943, Nazis landed and ordered the mayor to produce a list of the names of local Jews. The mayor went to the local metropolitan, Chrysostomos, for help. A metropolitan is kind of a step higher than a bishop. Chrysostomos advised him to burn the list and went to the Nazis to argue that the Jews were Greek citizens and must not be deported. The Nazi commander again demanded a list for deportation. Chrysostomos and the mayor of Zakhninos wrote down their own names and rushed off to warn the island's 275 Jews to hide in the mountains. Most of them survived. One of my favorite figures in the resistance against Jewish persecution is Archbishop Damaskinos of Athens. May his memory be eternal. Yad Vashem says Archbishop Damaskinos undertook the role of leading the battle against the German policy regarding the annihilation of the Jews of Greece. He began to act as soon as news of what was happening in Thessaloniki reached Athens. He collected money to send Metropolitan Ganadios of Thessaloniki to provide food and shelter for Jewish victims in the early days of Nazi bullying. Damaskinos conferred with leaders of the Jewish community and wrote a letter to Greek Prime Minister Logothetopoulos demanding the Greek government refuse to allow the deportation of Greek Jews. This letter was signed by dozens of important Greek leaders. Jewish Virtual Library says this historical document, unique in the annals of occupied Europe, was signed by representatives of the major cultural institutions and organizations on behalf of the Greek people. It required virtue and courage to sign such a document in those dark times. Raoul Wallenberg Foundation says there is no similar document of protests of the Nazis during World War II that has come to light in any other European country. And yeah, that makes me proud. I'm going to quote some excerpts from this letter. This is what every government and religious leader throughout Europe should have said to the Nazis. Quote, Today we are deeply concerned with the fate of our fellow citizens who are Jews, who we have lived together with both in slavery and freedom. The Muscunos challenged the Nazis on the terms of the so-called armistice with Greece when the occupation began. All Greek citizens without distinction of race or religion were to be treated equally by the occupation authorities, he said. 
and he challenged the claim that the Jewish population endangered the military occupation authorities. He refused to be complicit in deporting Jews, saying, In our national consciousness, all the children of Mother Greece are an inseparable unity, equal members of the national body, irrespective of religion or dramatic differences. Damaskinos said, Our holy religion does not recognize superior or inferior qualities based on race or religion, and thus condemns any attempt to discriminate or create racial or religious differences. That is the Greek Orthodox religion I was raised in. The Maskinos was called before the occupation authorities to explain himself. His response was, I have taken up my cross. I spoke to the Lord and made up my mind to save as many Jewish souls as possible. Nazi General Jürgen Strupp, leader of the SS in Greece, threatened to put Archbishop Damaskinos in front of a firing squad. The holy man's response, Greek religious leaders are not shot, they are hanged. I request you to respect the custom. Stroop didn't follow through, and Damaskinos plowed right ahead, doing everything he could to thwart the Nazis. He condemned the persecution of Jews and ordered his priests to preach that message in their sermons to their congregations. Orthodox priests, under his leadership, forged thousands of Orthodox baptismal records, helped Jews to escape the area or hid them with their own families. 250 Jewish children were hidden and protected by the Greek clergy. Over 600 Greek priests were arrested and deported to concentration camps for helping Jews. On May 27, 1969, Yad Vashem recognized Archbishop Theophilos Damaskinos as righteous among nations. Jewish Virtual Library says Athenians in general showed hostility to anti-Jewish measures. There was widespread famine in Greece during the Nazi occupation, as nearly all the food was requisitioned by the German army. Many Greeks died of starvation, but still the people pushed back, even in small ways. There was no full-scale looting of Jewish homes, as there had been in Thessaloniki. Many of the homes vacated by escaping Jews or Jews who were arrested by the Nazis were taken over by neighbors and friends of the victims who protected them from looting. Jewish Virtual Library says the largest number of Jews survived within Greece through the protections offered by the EAM, that was the partisans, and a variety of sources including Archbishop Damaskinos and Chief of Athens Police Angelos Evert and a large number of the population. And yet, despite the actions of Archbishop Damaskinos, Police Chief Evert, Metropolitan Chrysostomos, and many other priests, mayors, and regular citizens of Greece, 81% of Greece's Jewish population died during the Holocaust. Memory eternal. Understandably, many who did survive decided to immigrate to Israel, the United States, parts of Western Europe, South America, and other places. How hard it must have been to even imagine returning to villages and cities where homes and places of worship had been raised, where the resting place of families had been desecrated and destroyed, where they'd been beaten and tortured and so many had died. Today, only five or 6,000 Jews remain in Greece in total out of a pre-war population of 80,000. Eternal memory to the many victims who died during the Holocaust and to the survivors who bore witness to the Shoah. 
and to those who did what was right and did not turn their backs on the persecuted Jews of Greece. We will never forget. I am compelled to mention that the evening after writing the notes on the destruction of the Thessaloniki Jewish Cemetery, which was so upsetting, I saw reports of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, bulldozing Palestinian cemeteries in Gaza. I'm shaking the Israeli government is using the same tactics once wielded against the Jewish people. The boobies of my friends growing up and the friends of my family who'd survived the camp said never again means never against anyone. And I know that is the overwhelming belief of Jews everywhere. I pray for the end of the violence in Gaza and for the safe release of the hostages. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Diotis Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Thanks to Eduardo Gill for research help. And thank you, childhood friend Anne Birmingham Casparine, for holding my hand and taking a look at my episode notes when I felt overwhelmed. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek underscore like underscore me. We'll see you next time. Yes, us.